the book of 1 Samuel, and I want to talk about that for a second because um, just to give you a little bit of overview, First uh, and 2 Samuel are back-to-back in your Old Testament, and they're originally one book. It's just the book of Samuel, and it got divided into two a long time ago and placed in Scripture that way so that we don't have one gigantic book because they're both large on their own. So First and 2 Samuel, one book, written uh, by probably multiple authors. We're not exactly sure who authored exactly which parts of it. It's more of a compilation of the history of Israel during this season. Um, and it covers basically in First uh, and Second Samuel, it's gonna cover about, to give you a sense of where we are on the timeline, it's roughly about 1100 BC to about 950 BC that's being covered in those books. Um, And it it sort of divides into three sections. The first section is all about the life of Samuel. The second section is all about the life of Saul. The third section is all about the life and the reign of David. And the focus of our study is the life of David. So we're going to be bouncing around 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel during this study. Um, But to understand David's story... You have to include some of Samuel's story. To understand David's story, you have to include some of Saul's story because these men are contemporaries and they're involved in things together. Now, as this thing unfolds, it is generally sequential. However, it doesn't follow a strict chronological order. And I tell you that because if you're reading First and Second Samuel, you're gonna get confused if you try to read it like a novel because all of a sudden it talks about something and you're like, wait, I thought this happened before and what, which order did this come in? It's, it's actually not given in a strict chronological order. Think of it more like um, people sitting around a campfire remembering their high school days and everybody bringing up their stories and then it all kind of gets compiled and comes together. So it generally unfolds over a general time timeline, but there's, there's certain bits of a story that are told here and then the other part of the story is told here and then we see another part of the story told here and that's kind of what happens. So uh, it's like a collection of highlights and some of the stories are told a little bit out of order. Um, And it's going to seem even more choppy in the way that we covered on Sunday mornings because we're not covering the whole thing. And so we're going to be bouncing around from one highlight to another. And the point is that we're going to be looking for um, lessons, lessons we can learn from the example of David's life. Some of the lessons we can learn from David are from his good examples. Some of the lessons we learn from David are from his bad examples. Because remember, David is far from perfect. He is deeply, deeply flawed. He made some huge mistakes, but he also made some great choices, and he got to see God do some amazing things, because it turns out David is a real guy. Just like you and me, he's just a regular person. On his best days, he's practically a superhero. On his worst days, he's a villain. And we can learn from him either way, but, but when they put the whole life story together and it all finishes up, God says about David, he's a man after my own heart. And, and so it's so encouraging to me to think that way. It's, it's true when you we look at any of these well-known Bible people, we go, look at, look at um, Abraham's life. 
it unfolds all throughout this part of Genesis and we see Abraham like doing really dumb things and really profoundly faithful things and really dumb things and really amazingly faithful things, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and at the end, he's called a friend of God. He's called the father of faith. He has this long story, when you put the whole thing together, warts and all, you go, wow, we can learn from this guy. The same with Moses or Elijah or any of these people that we sort of look at and go, wow, that's a superhero in the Bible. If you actually go back and read their stories, you will find these are regular people with a super God. And that's what we have in common. So in the book of Acts, when Paul sums up David's life, here's what he says. He says, he served God's purpose in his generation. And I read that and I'm like, man, what an epitaph. To be able to come to the end of your life, how awesome would it be if what was said about you is she served God's purpose in her generation. He honored God during his time on earth. That's the story we get about David. And I can't think of a better epitaph. I I certainly hope something like that could be said about me one day. That's the idea. So, David. He is mentioned over a thousand times in the scripture. We hear about the time of David, the reign of David, the city of David, the song of David, the son of David, on and on and on. Everything keeps going back to David. He's mentioned more in scripture than anyone else with the exception of God himself. Everybody else is mentioned less often than David. And roughly a thousand years after David dies, the Messiah is born, Jesus. And Jesus has forever been known as the son of David. It's an incredible honor. It's quite a legacy. It's quite a story. So you ready for another chapter? All right. Here we go. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, so hopefully you got this marked in your Bible. If not, find 1 Samuel in your Old Testament. Turn to chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, and we're going to pick it up together in verse 1, and we're going to see first one of these overview statements, and then we're going to focus in on the details of the situation. Chapter 18, verse 1. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul uh, took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now remember, this is one of those summation statements. It's giving us this big picture, and then we're going to focus in and see some of these details. But we've just heard the story of the killing of Goliath. David has just had his great victory. And it goes on to say that this guy, Jonathan, who is the firstborn son of Saul the king... Jonathan and David become best friends. And the way, God, the way scripture describes it is that their souls were knit together. 
And, and it says that David and Jonathan made a covenant together. And we're gonna hear more about that covenant as time goes on. But they've decided that they've devoted themselves together as brothers. And they're gonna live together and they're gonna walk together through this life. And Jonathan made this covenant with David because he loved him, because he respected him, because he honored him. And um, we see this all happening and to the point where, remember in uh, chapter 17 when uh, David was about to face Goliath, Saul tried to give him his armor and David's like, I can't wear this stuff. This, is, this doesn't fit me. I, I can't use this stuff. And then we turn the page into chapter 18 and what do we have? We have Jonathan giving him his armor and it fits, it works, he accepts it. And it's a trend, it's a uh, contrast that we see right there. That sort of the picture is that um, everything with Saul runs contrary to everything with David. But Saul, uh, but David and Jonathan have this connection. And it's a powerful, powerful connection. And so um, it, it sums it up in verse five. It says that um, David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul sent him over the men of war. Again, this uh, large umbrella statement that we're gonna see unfolding before our eyes that he gives him more and more responsibility as a leader in the army. And, and David keeps building up these victories. His reputation keeps growing, and we're gonna see how that unfolds. But these are the summary statements. So David's relationship with Saul is rocky at best, but David had a great relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. They're like brothers, which is really interesting when you think about it, because who's supposed to inherit the throne of the king? His firstborn son. Jonathan is the one that loses the most by David coming on the scene. But Jonathan knows that David is God's choice for the throne. He understands the throne is not his. And what he wants to do is he wants to come alongside of David and support him in God's calling in his life, which I'm just astounded by. You know how rare that is? That, that somebody would have that much to lose, that much to give up, and, and not worry about maintaining their own kingdom? Saul, his father, is the exact opposite. All he's doing is trying to save his kingdom. But Jonathan is, is willing to walk wherever God sends him and God puts him alongside of David and makes them best friends. He's well aware that the throne was never meant to be his. God chose David for that and Jonathan seems to be okay with it. So instead of trying to keep um, David from getting that or trying to do away with David, he comes along and supports him. See, Jonathan knew that the story was not about him at all. The story was about God. So Saul, his problems with David started right after David killed Goliath. Pick it up in verse six. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Let's just stop there. David is bigger than the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> 
Those of you too young to understand that, just Google it. David's bigger than the Beatles. You know, if you're old like me, and can you remember, or maybe you've seen this on video, when the Beatles came to America to do the Ed Sullivan show in New York, the streets of New York had to shut down. Why? Because every female within a thousand miles came. And they line the streets and they're like cheering and screaming and fainting and all of this kind of stuff. And we had never seen anything. We had Elvis. That was like a smaller version of this. The Beatles show up and the streets fill with crazy women. That's what happened after the Philistine was killed. The word is the parade is coming. David's in town. And the girls are all like, oh, David. And they come running out and they're writing songs about him. And the number one song on the charts is this song. And the, and the chorus says, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his tens of thousands. And that did not sit so well with Saul. Look at verse 8. Then Saul became very angry. For this saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands. But to me they've ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And thus begins the story of one of the most dysfunctional relationships in all of human history. See, Saul thought the kingdom was his. So he fought tooth and nail to preserve what was his. David knew that the kingdom was God's. And so he fought hard to honor God. And while both Saul and David are deeply, deeply flawed characters, this is a story of God who doesn't have any flaws and what he can do even through deeply flawed individuals like David or like Saul. The main difference, though, between David's story and Saul's story is that the Spirit of God departed from Saul, but the Spirit of God was always at work in David's life. Look at verse 10. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Now, before we get to this... I want you to understand something because every time we look at this, an an evil spirit from God, such a strange statement, such a strange idea. But let's remember, the scripture teaches us that God is sovereign. That means God is in control of everything and everybody in every time and every place. There is none above him. He controls all. He's the boss of hell. He's the boss of earth. He's the boss of heaven. He's the boss of everywhere. And just as God allowed Satan to torment Job in the book of Job, and and Satan could not do it without God's permission, in the same case, now we have another evil spirit that is being controlled by God and given permission by God to go and torment Saul. And Saul is going to be tormented off and on by an evil spirit for the rest of his life because the spirit of God has been taken away from him. 
And we're gonna see this massive contrast between these two men. So Saul is sitting there holding his spear and David, it says, is playing the harp. Now, when you picture someone playing a harp, I know you're picturing some lovely lady in a long flowing gown in an orchestra with this big thing, but what David was playing was probably what they call a lyre. It was, it was more like a 10-string guitar. And uh, David was incredibly proficient as a musician, and Saul would have these fits of rage related to this spiritual oppression that he was under, and the playing of music soothed him. And so once he learned that David was this great musician, he would have David come and sit in the throne room and strum his guitar, and Saul would generally calm down. And so one day, David is in there playing music, and Saul is trying to keep his emotions in check, and he looks and goes, here's this spear, there's that stupid guy who's a threat to my life, and watch what he does. Pick up verse 11. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence, and then don't miss this word, twice. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means there were these two different instances. We're actually gonna see more instances where he keeps throwing spears at David. But I think what it means is that they had this incident, the spear misses David's head, go doing, sticks in the wall behind him, and David goes, what's up? And he goes, oh, sorry, my mistake, keep playing. <laughs> goes and grabs the, the, the spear, sits back down, David starts playing again, and doing, comes right behind him again. And at this point, David, being incredibly wise, goes, it might be best for me to leave now. And he hits the road, um, and, and verse 12, now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. This is the contrast we're gonna see mentioned again and again in a bunch of different ways. The Spirit of God is with David, but the Spirit of God has departed from Saul. Remember, this is not David's story, it is not Saul's story, it's God's story. It's a story about the Spirit of God. Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. So this attack has happened at least twice, and Saul would eventually calm down, he always did, but he was still, as it says, afraid of David. He was afraid of David, why? When did David ever threaten Saul in any kind of way? When, when did David ever give Saul any reason to question his allegiance? Never. But Saul saw the proverbial handwriting on the wall. He knew that God had torn the kingdom from him because Samuel told him this. And it was beginning to be clear that God's choice for the next king was likely this young man, David. And so Saul becomes literally, insanely jealous of David. And he starts looking for ways to kill him. The spear missed at least twice. 
And so he comes up with a better idea. He sends him off to war, which by the way, as we keep uh, learning the story of David, we're gonna find that David does the same thing when he has a guy that he needs to get rid of. He sends him off to war hoping he will be killed in the battle. So the very same thing that had been done to him, David's gonna do later. So let's not be thinking, oh wow, this Saul is such a bad guy and this David is such a good guy. But David now is being sent off to battle. And he makes him a commander of a thousand, which means he's gonna lead a troop that is going to go into battle. He is going to be at the front lines of the battle again and again and again. And Saul knows this and that's his strategy. But David prospered even more. Verse 14, David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. Notice it keeps mentioning that. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David and he went out and he came in before them. Look at that. Jonathan loves David. The men of war love David. All of Israel loves David. All of Judah loves David. The women fill the streets and sing songs to him every time he comes into town. Everybody loves David, but Saul is afraid of him. Saul is jealous. Saul despises him. Saul keeps trying to kill him any way he can. And finally, Saul realizes that to be against David is to be against one that God is protecting. And so he comes up with a new plan. Remember the promise when Goliath was making the threats. He said, whoever kills this guy, I will give him my daughter in marriage, right? He remembers his promise. He's gonna make good on this promise to give him his daughter. And then he'll send him off to war again and again and again until finally the Philistines get rid of him. Verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my older daughter Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time uh, when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite, for a wife. Here's the thing Saul knew. There was no way David could afford the dowry price. Saul's gotta keep this promise. I said I would give my daughter to the guy who kills Goliath. But in this society, whenever there's a marriage arranged, there is a dowry price agreed upon. And the groom is to pay this to the bride's family. And I don't have time to teach all the details about why dowries were done the way they were, but it was expected that you would pay a dowry. And if the family was significant in society, if they were wealthy, if they were powerful, the dowry price was much, much higher. Well, there is no one wealthier, no one more powerful, and no one higher in society than Saul. And so the, the dowry price for his eldest daughter is astronomical. David couldn't possibly afford this, and of course Saul knows this. So he looks good by offering this 
um, promise to be fulfilled, but he knows that there's no way for it to be fulfilled because David can't afford the dowry price. And so he marries her off to some other dude. And that other dude and her, we never hear from again. And nobody was happier than her younger sister. Her younger sister was Michal, and uh, she's the younger daughter of Saul. And because like every other girl in Israel, she was infatuated with David. And when Saul found this out, he comes up with a new plan to get rid of David. Look at verse 20. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable, she had posters of him in the bedroom. She had, she had written her, his name all over her textbooks, right? She was gaga about this guy. And her dad finds out and goes, oh, I think I have a plan. <laughs> it has, seems evident that Saul knows something about this daughter. He, he's, later it says, she'll be a snare to him. And Saul is like, yeah, take her, take her, <laughs> right? He's gonna give this younger daughter, um, and it was agreeable to him. Verse 21, Saul thought, I'll give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So he's thinking, I can control her, she will ruin him. I can send him off to war, the Philistines will kill him. One way or another, I'm getting rid of this guy. And therefore Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Did he just say a hundred foreskins? <laughs> right in church? Guys, I, I don't decide what the Bible says. I just read it to you. Um, so... David can't afford the dowry. He comes up with this plan. A hundred Philistine foreskins. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to think about this. Uh, if you don't know what a foreskin is, Google it. No, don't, don't not Google it. <laughs> Ask your parents. <laughs> Please do not Google it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, let me just tell you that this plan is a plan to kill David. Simple. He is going to require that David kills a hundred Philistines. How do I know this? Because you can't just walk up to someone and ask for their foreskin. The only way to get that is to kill them first. That's the only way. So he has to kill a hundred Philistines and while David is a mighty warrior, even Chuck Norris cannot handle this situation. This is too much. 
So Saul is asking the impossible, and he knows that if David refuses to do it, he looks weak, and the people will lose respect for him, and if he does it, he'll be killed. Saul's got a perfect plan. Verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law before the days had expired. David rose up and went, he and his men. He He didn't think about the fact that he commanded men. He would take them with him. He rose up, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. David goes above and beyond Saul's demand. He, he shows up with a bag filled with 200 foreskins and says, there, I'll take your daughter now. And the deal is struck. And Saul has no choice. He gives David his daughter's hand in marriage. And look at verse 29. Then Saul was even more afraid of David. No matter what I do to this guy, he prospers. No matter how I set him up, he succeeds. No matter how I try to make him look bad, he always looks good. No matter how many times I try to kill him, he always survives. And the people hear the stories and they're more impressed with him than ever. He is burning inside with jealousy and he is burning inside with fear. He's afraid of David. It says it multiple times in this passage alone and continues to say that as the story unfolds. The more Saul allowed his fear and jealousy to tell him what to do, the more his fear and jealousy grew. And the more that David trusted God, the greater his successes became. Fear and jealousy make terrible masters. If you get nothing else out of this story... Fear and jealousy make terrible masters. I have never heard anyone tell a story about how they made a decision based on fear and jealousy and looking back, they're glad they made that decision. Fear and jealousy make terrible masters. And from this point on, virtually everything Saul does is motivated by those two emotions, fear and jealousy. And Saul is trying to protect his own kingdom. And he lives in fear that somebody like David is going to take it away from him. But even after he wears the crown, David realizes that the kingdom is not his. The people are not his. The throne is not his. The kingdom, the people, and the throne belong to God. And David understands that. It's God's kingdom. 
So fear can have no control over David because he submitted himself completely to God. It's interesting that verse 30 shows us the the contrast between David and Saul. Saul acts rashly out of jealousy and experiences more fear and jealousy, but David acts with wisdom, it says, more than anyone else in the kingdom, and he experiences more success. Now, I'm gonna ask you to flip in your Bibles to the back of the New Testament in the book of James, and and I'm just gonna point out that James comments on this later. It's all the way to the back. It's right after the big book of Hebrews and before you get to the books from Peter. And I want you to go to James chapter three very quickly with me, and I want us to look at verses 14 through 16 of James chapter three and see if you don't see the lesson of David and Saul taught in this passage. Verse, um, let's start in verse 13. Chapter three, James. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And and back in verse 30 of 1 Samuel 19, Commanders of the Philistines went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul and his name is highly esteemed. You see, where there is fear and jealousy, there is no godly wisdom. It says in James that that kind of so-called wisdom is demonic Does that make sense now that we look back at Saul who's being tormented by a demon and therefore has faulty wisdom and everything he tries to do based on his fear and jealousy ends up falling off the cliff? But David acts in godly wisdom. He's led by the spirit of God and he operates in wisdom. Saul is controlled by an evil spirit and the result is disorder and every evil thing. As James says, success in life really comes down to this question. Whose kingdom is it? If you keep fighting to control your own kingdom, the results will be devastating. But if you, if you live with the understanding that it's all God's, that it's all about God, that it's all God's kingdom, that it's all God's power, that it's all God's glory forever and ever and ever, amen. If you understand that, then you live with the wisdom that guides you to actual success. So here's the question. Which spirit drives your life? A spirit of jealousy and fear? or the spirit of the living God. We'll see it in the lives of David and Saul as the story continues. But you can see it in your own life today. What areas of your life are you still insisting on controlling? What areas of your life are you still saying, no, this one's about me. This one's about my plan, my desire, my comfort, my rewards. I'm gonna make this about me. 
What part of your life do you know that God is saying, hey, look, if you just let go of this, if you just trust me, I'll take you from here, and you're going, man, I'm, I'm not, okay, God, I'll, I'll do some stuff, but not my finances, not my career, God, not my children, not, not my plans. I'm gonna hold on to this relationship There's gonna be this area of my life that's going to be about me and my control. It's gonna be my kingdom. As long as it's your kingdom, you're responsible for the power to operate it. But if you're living in Christ's kingdom, you're gonna experience the success that only he can bring. Paul says it this way. He goes, it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives within me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He said, I, I've counted all of the things I've, I've built up for myself as trash and I've focused my attention on one thing, knowing God, serving God, honoring God. My life's gonna be about his kingdom and because of that, he can leave the fear behind Because of that, he doesn't have to walk in jealousy. Because of that, he doesn't have to be controlled by his emotions. He never had to fear because he had already surrendered fully to Christ. So what did he have to lose? As a famous missionary, Jim Elliott, famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot hope to keep to gain what he can never lose. And he fearlessly, Jim Elliott, gave his life on a beach, reaching out with the gospel, trying to get his murderers to know the saving grace of Christ. He died on the beach and woke up in heaven. He is no fool who gives what he cannot hope to keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Living for the glory of God is the most liberating thing a person can do. Despite all of his weaknesses and failures, David made his life the whole story about the kingdom of God. Saul made his life about the kingdom of Saul. Who is the king in your kingdom? That is a question worth pondering. Let's stand and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, as we come before you grappling with the truth of your word and realizing that for all of us, things like fear and jealousy and and doubt and discouragement and anger and all of these issues, they have too big a place in our lives. And so God, we come before you as those who like David are weak, as those who like David are prone to failures and mistakes. And we open our hands and say, those things we've been holding on to, God, we'd really appreciate it if you'd take those things. We'd really appreciate it if you would guide and direct even the smallest corners of our lives that we might experience you and the abundance that comes with that and and get off the thrones in our own lives and let you take your rightful place. Help us so to do, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.